This is Adrian Warnock's Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. ...and to walk humbly with our God. You know, at the heart of the Christian... At the heart of the Christian faith is humility. To act justly and to walk humbly with our God. You know, it's sometimes the first part of that phrase is, is, is easy, isn't it? Uh, or at least we, we turn it on its head, actually. We want other people to act justly towards us, don't we? Amen? You know, um, I think I may have mentioned this before here, but I, you know, I was cut up on the road once. And what, what's the instinct immediately? It's to hoot your horn, to, you know, pull the, the, uh, the um, flashlights and, and to shout maybe. I didn't shout this time, but I did break the indicator. And it's because we want justice to be done to us, don't we? And justice is really important. We say we need what we deserve. And when we hear about terrible things like wars, or indeed like the, 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 tsunami, the tsunamis that was a few years ago, or the terrible storm that's just hit the Philippines, and I don't know if you read the news this morning, but I, I was reading it, it was saying that maybe more than 10,000 people died. And we look at that and we say, that's not fair. How is that right? And I have to say, it's not fair was very much a part of my upbringing, if you like, my uh, feeling. I had this strong sense that the world needed to be fair. And of course, it's very true. We often will look at the poor and needy and say they don't deserve our help. But the passage here says that we must act justly and to walk humbly. And in the context, it's talking about acting justly on behalf of the poor. Acting to ease the oppression, acting to, in past history, we had the Wilberforces of this world who acted against the slave trade. And yet today, there are more slaves than ever across this world. We want justice for ourselves, and yet sometimes we're not so good at giving it to others. But at its heart, we've got a problem, because actually, if we really say to God, God, give me what I deserve, That is not a very sensible thing to say. Amen? Or is it just me? See, I grew up thinking I was perfect, like most kids do, no? It's everyone else that's done things to me. And even if we get angry, we blame them, don't we? It's all their fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my sister's fault. Definitely my sister's fault. It's the kids at school that are mean to me. It's the this, it's the that. And all of us have had experiences in life that we feel like we're a victim. But the reality is this. No matter how much you've been victimised, I don't want to minimise that, because I know the suffering in this world is very real. But the truth is this. No matter how much you have been victimised, you actually have no right to stand before God and say, I deserve so much from you. The truth is this, you have also not just been victimised, but been someone who's victimised others. It's true, isn't it? Which of us can sit here this morning and say, I'm perfect. I've done nothing wrong. I don't regret anything I've said. I certainly don't even regret anything I've thought. 
It's just not true. Jesus said, didn't he, that, you know, those of us that say, oh, well, at least I haven't committed murder, he says, well, you've committed murder in your heart. And the truth is this, that's why the humble bit is so important, because actually you and I don't get to determine what is just. We don't. Some things happen in this world purely by chance, but most things that happen is obviously the negative stuff because this world is fallen. And why is this world fallen? This world is fallen because we, as people, going right back to the first, Adam and Eve, have chosen to turn our backs on God. And the reality is this, we don't like to be humble. We want to be in charge. We want things to happen our way. Sometimes, gosh, forbid it, we even bring that attitude into our prayer lives. And we come to God and we say, okay, God, I've got to do this for you. First, I want to do this. Second, I want to do that. Oh, third is the promotion at work. Fourth is the new car that I really want. And fifth, can you help me with a, uh, maybe a move? Oh, and maybe just down at the bottom of six. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I better pray for my family that they be saved, yeah. And, and the thing is this, though. Even number six, it's all about me. You know, and we might as well sing, it's all about me, Jesus. And all this is for me, for my glory, and for my fame. I want you, God, to do things my way. And sometimes we even pray as though we're commanding God to do something. Shame on us. To walk humbly with our God. To walk humbly with our God. I want to read from Psalm 2. See, the problem is this. He is God and you are not. He is God and you are not, and nor am I. But listen to what it says in Psalms 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What do we see in those two verses? It's very simple this. The rejection of the king. The rejection of the king. And the people, even today, rage against God, don't they? Sometimes people can be incredibly blasphemous. Sometimes people go so far as to say, well, God is dead. It's a fascinating story, isn't it, about how you know, the, the person who first said that, his house is now a printing press. Did you know that? He predicted the end of the church, but the building in which he did that became a printing press for the Bible. <laughs> Why do the nations rage? Why do they get so angry? Why is it that when people meet Christians today, even in the schools, sometimes the first thing they say is, oh, you're those horrible people. We, you're hateful, you Christians. You hate other people. Well, really what they're saying is we hate you, Christian. It seems that the world will tolerate people from other faiths sometimes. But when it comes to Christians, certainly when it comes to evangelical Christians, and probably definitely when it comes to charismatic Christians like you and I, they don't want us. They don't like us. They reject us. They're angry at us. And that was my experience growing up. I was one of those kids. I was a little bit bold. And you can, I, I, you can probably imagine me being like this. But I used to run the Christian Union at school. 
And uh, I remember I used to stand up in front of the school sometimes and say something like this. Uh, this week we're going to have a, a debate on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. And we'd like to invite you all to come. And some of them did. But most of them hated me. I, I didn't get invited to parties. I, I didn't get invited to smoke cigarettes, which was probably a good thing. Nobody ever offered me a spliff, even. I think God had me on a tight rein, because he knew that the sort of person I was, I needed a tight rein, you know? He wasn't going to let me rebel. And I thank God for that. But at the time, being without friends hurt. And we cast off the restraints of God. We say, well, it's so boring and restrictive. I mean, who wants to go to church every Sunday morning and look like this and be boring? And, you know, what about parties and drinking and, and, and having free sex and, you know, doing all these things? Why would we want to be so restricted? Why would we want to be so limited? And, it, and we're like Adam and Eve in the garden where, you know, God says, look, you've got this whole amazing world I've created for you. The stars for you to wander at in the evening. The, the moon there for you to, uh, to, to walk under the light of at night. The, the, this beautiful flowers springing up all around you. All these trees, all these animals you know, all the animals around for you to look at and admire. All the ways in which, you know, the, 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 some of them just are so laughable that they, they, they demonstrate my, my humour. I mean, have you ever looked at a giraffe? And yet they're designed. I had never understood this. I'd always thought giraffes were just a weird, ungainly animal. What's that, the long neck? and the, the... But I watched one on a hill in Africa. And they kind of walk up these really steep hills and they're able to do it because of their legs. And it's a bizarre solution to the problem of how do you walk around a hill. But believe you me, it works. But you look at them and you think, wow. Or you look at the amazing... And, and you know, they could have gone diving into the sea and looked at the beautiful fish hidden beneath anyone, you know, and for, for centuries, for thousands of years, no human ever saw them. But God saw those beautiful fish and he reveled in them. And he thought, I'm not going to make them all grey. I'm going to make this one blue. And this one orange. I'm going to have fun. And he created this amazing world for them to see and for them to enjoy. And he put in the garden all these trees and all these beautiful fruits. And he even put two special fruits there. And he said, look, here's one. It's called the tree of life. Eat this and you will live forever. And then he put another one there, and it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How many of you know knowing about evil is not so helpful? Sometimes you learn about evil, you watch about evil, you listen about evil, you encounter evil, and you <laughs> it breaks your heart. I had an experience like that this week. I was coming home from, from uh, a work trip, and I, I had to do a telecon, and I knew I couldn't do it on the motorway because I'm a good man. So I pulled in a little early, actually, because I was about to join the motor. I thought, I don't know where I can stop. So I pulled in a little early to a McDonald's, and I got into this McDonald's, and I thought I'll have a bit of peace, a bit of quiet, maybe I'll do a bit of blogging or something. And I, I pulled in, I, I got myself a drink, well, I can, something to eat as well. But anyway, it was lunchtime. Sorry, shouldn't be eating junk food, really. But anyway, God was in it, because I sat there, and next to me, there were these two girls... And they were having some kind of row. One of them was clearly distraught in tears. They'd had some kind of disagreement. But one of them was talking about things like, I'm not coming back. I'm gonna, I, I don't care. I'll just live on the street. 
And the other one said, you can't do that. And in the end, I, had, I just couldn't watch these two young girls any longer. I turned and I spoke to them and I said, what is it? Can I help? And one of them said this. I'm 17 years old. My daughter turned 17 in March. And she said this. She said, I'm pregnant. And... And I don't want to have an abortion. My parents have thrown me out because I won't have an abortion. What has this world come to? Well, because she won't commit murder, her own parents have thrown her out. And it turned out that her sister had been thrown out a few, four years before when she was just 15. Cast off restraints. Cast off the restraints. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. And we say, why shouldn't we? And we turn good into evil. Can you imagine punishing someone because they wouldn't have an abortion? I was able to point her in the direction of church. Churches that I knew, fortunately, because it was in an area where I knew people and I was able to say to her, go to church, they won't condemn you. But we cast off those restraints. Adam and Eve, looking at the two things, they have the option to, to just live in their innocence, and to live forever in their innocence, or they have the option to take the knowledge of good and evil. And as I just said, sometimes when you find out just how evil things can get, it's pretty awful. And what do they do? Well, Satan comes along and says to Eve and says, look, she says, he says, did God really say? Doesn't that happen today sometimes, even in the church? Did God really say? Did he? Surely we can just twist it a little bit or, or make it a bit softer, make it a bit more easy. And actually one of the interesting things is the devil was actually the first religious person. I don't know if you realise that. Because what religious people do is they take what God said and they make it even harder. Did you know that? So, you know, God says, don't get drunk with wine. Very clear in the New Testament. Religious people come along and say, you mustn't ever drink. In fact, more than that, you mustn't even go into a pub or go near a pub. In fact, if there's a pub on the end of your road, you better walk around the other way. Because if you get even close to it, you're going to die or something. I don't know. And Satan said, you know, did God say you mustn't eat of any tree? See how he, he, he just adds a little something to them. And he, of course, says no, and, uh, and we know what happens. But what's basically happening there is what we see in this verse. Casting off their restraints. And every time we commit a sin, we're casting off the restraints that God would put on us. But, you know, if you have a lot of water behind a dam, for example, a dam wall, and you live at the bottom of that dam, you better be grateful for that wall. Unrestrained water kills people. Even though when it's restrained and in its right place, it's a beautiful thing to drink and it keeps us alive. Unrestraint isn't freedom, it's destruction. Constraint that keeps you in the place that you're designed to be is not somehow a restriction that we need to cast off. It's liberty. It's true liberty. You know what true freedom is? True freedom is when you're being used for the purpose for which you were designed. You know, I, 
I, I thought it was lovely a few weeks ago. A friend of mine uh, came down, and he actually preached in Enfield. And if you, because he, he didn't come down here, uh, so you might want to watch this sermon on the net. But one of the things he said was he talked about the fact that see this, this is designed to be a lectern. And right now, this lectern is liberated, if you like. It is living in its freedom. It is restored, if you like, to its purpose. It is being used to support the Bible. It is being used for Adrian to stand behind it and preach. So it's rejoicing. It's enjoying this moment because this is what it was made for. It's not made to prop open a door. It's not made to have a lamp somehow balancing on it, to, you know, in the corner because you don't have a coffee table. I mean, you could just about get it to do that, but it wouldn't do it very well because this is what it's designed for. And brothers and sisters, when you are restrained and constrained by God, it is not a constraint any more than it's a constraint for this to say, no, you, you are election. You're not anything else, you're elected. Don't think that you're something you're not. Don't say to yourself, but God, I wish I was a preacher, when you are not meant to be a preacher. Be what you're meant to be. Don't say, I wish I was Toppy, because trust me, those of us that have known him a long time know we are not him. Okay? My son calls him a preaching machine. He says, Dad, the rest of you, you can all preach, but Toppy, he's a preaching machine. And it's true. Because God made him to do that. God made me to do something different. What I do, Toppy can't do. Toppy could never do all this writing stuff I do and all the things I do on the internet. He couldn't do that. He knows that. And he's so glad that I'm there to do that for him, if you like. And I'm so glad that he's there to do what God has called him to do. And so it's not a restraint when God constricts you to both act morally in a certain way, but also to be a certain person that God has made you to be, whatever that is. He's designed you. So be happy in the constraints he's put on you. And don't try and step outside of that. But unfortunately, that's exactly what the world does. They say, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to give us advice. We don't want anyone to rule it over us. We don't want anyone to lord it over us. I did it my way. It's a very popular song, but it's a very foolish way to live. Because we've heard, what is the rejection of the king? Well, what is the response of the king to that rejection? Is God threatened by the peoples of the world who are trying to get rid of him? Is he? What do you think? Let's listen, shall we? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. This is Jesus' words, really. Uh, the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is not insecure. He's king. And to rebel against him is as foolish as to bang your head against this lectern repeatedly. Because the lectern's going to win. Jesus is in charge. Oh, the devil thought he'd beaten Jesus, didn't he? There he was, hanging on the cross, 
And I suppose the demons in hell, hell were having a party. The king of life hanging there. And even the sun goes dark. And God can't bear to look. And of course the people of darkness, they love that, don't they? The kingdom of darkness loves that. Darkness, we will have a party. This is a glorious moment for us. This is great victory for us. Jesus finally got rid of. The one that the devil wanted to still worship from. The one who the devil said, it's not fair that the angels should all be bowing at his feet. I want the angels to bow at my feet. That very one that he hated for all those thousands of years, hanging there, dying, with wounds in his arms, with a crown of thorns on his head, with blood dripping down his face, with sweat mixing in with that blood, with, with whip marks on the back, probably bits of his bowel hanging out from the scourging which often killed people in and of itself, with his beard having been plucked out, hanging there in agony. And best of all, experiencing the rejection of God, experiencing the wrath of God poured out on him. Imagine how the devil must have felt looking at that scene, saying, ha, 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 even God has left you, even God has rejected you, even God is angry with you now, as the wrath of God that should be poured out on each and every one of us was poured out on Jesus. Hanging there. As Jesus is almost giving up his last breath, he says this, it is finished. It is finished. And as he said those words, your sin was dealt with. It was finished. The debt was paid. And as he said those words, an earthquake struck and men and women leapt out of their tombs alive. And as he said those words and the earthquake struck, the curtain of the temple was ripped in half. And as Jesus Christ hung there, dead, Apparently in defeat, it was the greatest victory he'd ever won. The greatest victory anyone had ever won. And as we remember those who died for us in the war, who, as we heard, gave their todays for our tomorrow, Jesus gave his today for our tomorrow. But praise God, he wasn't left in that tomb. Three days later, as the women come to the tomb, in trembling and in fear and just in mourning, thinking this one that we loved, one of them a prostitute. Whoever gave a prostitute time of day in those days, or even today actually, one of them a prostitute that God had forgiven, that God had loved. One of them a woman who Jesus had, had raised her son from, her, her brother, sorry, from the dead, Lazarus, you know, Mary. All of them standing there thinking, Oh, how are we even going to get into the tomb? But we must try and give him a proper burial, at least. Totally dismayed. The men had left them and ran away. But the women still faithful to their Jesus that they loved. Because Jesus, don't let anyone tell you any differently, Jesus loved women. And he liberated those women. And he valued those women. And he honoured those women. And those women sat at his feet and listened like nobody else would have done in those days. And there they were wanting to give him the last ministration, if you like. The last service in great mourning, in great distress. But when they get to the tomb, the tomb is empty. Because the stone was rolled away. And because the cords of death could not hold him. He was not going to be restrained by death. Because he was the king of life. And he leapt out from that tomb. Forever the champion of the oppressed. Forever the champion of those that nobody else loves. 
Forever the champion of those who have nothing. Because he is willing to give you everything. He gave his everything for you. But there was still so much more left that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was this. A declaration that the debt had been paid. The payment had been made. The cost of your sin had been outweighed by the value of his righteousness. He was still righteous despite the fact he'd absorbed your sin. And so God raised him from the dead. And he seated him in the highest place, never again to fear death, never again to fear rebellion, never again to fear anything, because there he is, sovereign over all. And one day, yes, he will inflict judgment on his enemies. And sometimes, sometimes he breaks people even now. Maybe some of you in this room have experienced the brokenness of God. He's allowed something to come into your life. And you've been, so all you've wanted to say is, God, it's not fair. How could that happen? This is terrible. How could, how could I lose a baby? How could I lose a husband to death? How could this happen? How could that happen? And all the time God is saying, I know. And just like he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept, remember? So he feels your pain. It's not that he's, he's not immune to that. It's not that he's uncompassionate. But he's allowed that to happen. Why? For the same reason that he allowed Lazarus to die. That the glory of God might be seen in you. That you might be broken, humbled, if you like, in order that instead of the proud, arrogant person that you were born to be, Anyone who's seen a baby knows they're pretty arrogant right from the word go. The world revolves around them. Give me food now! And some of us are still like that when we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s. Marriage is meant to cure us of that. But even in marriage, we spend so much time worrying that our wife would be the best wife for us rather than thinking about how we could be the best husband for her or vice versa. You know, it's these people who say, God, give me a husband, give me a wife. The best one possible. Never give a moment's thought to how they could be the best one. But no, God sometimes allows things to happen in our lives to break us. To break us, to bring us down to that lower level. In order what? That he can build us. And what then? What then should be our response to the king? We've seen the rejection of the king. We've seen the response of the king, which is to enthrone Jesus. And now we see what our response should be. Now therefore, O kings... Be wise. It's a lovely verse there. Be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And I think sometimes as Christians, we move too fast beyond that. There is an element of fear of this great God that we've been talking about. He's holy. The Bible says elsewhere in Isaiah somewhere, it says that we should tremble at his word. If you want God to look at you, if you want God to listen to you, if you want God to be compassionate towards you, it says that the ones that he will look for are those who tremble at his word. So there is a fear of God, but it's not a terror of God. And that's because of what the next verse says. It says this, rejoice with trembling. So there's an element of trembling, yes, but there's an element of rejoicing. Because all that we've just heard, all that I've just said is true. And when I, as a young boy, realised it, I remember, I remember I was only four or five years old, I think it was. I was with my father and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, why is today called Good Friday? And he said, because Jesus died. And I said, what do you mean? How is that good? 
And then he said, well, he's, he's only five, I can't really explain to him. He said, well, he came back to life again on the Sunday. And I said, well, why is it not bad Friday and good Sunday then? So he said, well, he started to explain. You know, you have committed sins. You deserve to be punished. But Jesus took your punishment so that you could be forgiven. That's why it's Good Friday. And yes, because of course, two days later, three days later, he rises again. It's also a glorious day. Amen. Good Friday. And so I was like, I was offered a deal, basically. Do you want to continue to be punished or do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be God's enemy, who he's going to smash into pieces, or do you want to be his friend? Do you want to be someone who casts off all restraints or someone who follows him? Do you want to be someone who goes through life essentially on their own and may end up sometimes dead on their own? Because that's the fruit of it. If you live life as you choose, if you sleep around, if you divorce your tenth wife, who's going to marry you the eleventh time? And so many of these people end up alone. Or do I want to be a son of the living God? Part of the family of God? It's no choice really, is it? I, I mean, it's, it is a choice. But why would you choose this side when you can choose that side? And so that day I made a decision. God did something in my heart and I've never looked back. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this morning, if you're not a believer, the big problem is actually God. But he's also your big solution. You can hide from the wrath of God in the Son of God. What more can I say? And for those of us that are saved, surely let's allow this to, to lift up within us, to fill us afresh with this joy, and to fill us afresh with a new desire to go through this world, not wondering what we can get out of it, but what can we give? How can we show this compassion to others? How can we show this mercy to others? Who is it that God would bring into your McDonald's, if you like, that you can just reach out to? Because that girl went away, reconciled with her sister, consent to live with her sister, saying she'd be in church this very morning. Who knows? I pray she is. And who knows what the difference of her life could have been. Obviously, she didn't become a Christian there and then, but I'm praying that she will one day. And you can make a difference like that. I'm not special. I'm not saying I do that all the time. I don't. But God would call us as a church to be known as a people that reach out to those that the rest of the world wants nothing to do with. Our very first Sunday, we had two homeless people in this room. I don't know if you were in the other room. Maybe you didn't know that. But I would encourage us, reach out to people that are condemned and rejected to offer them the acceptance that you and I have received from God. That's social justice. Yes, there's more to it. We can help. We can feed them like we do with the food bank. We can... You know, build an orphanage in Africa like we've done in the past. And we can do all of those things. But ultimately, the kindest thing we can do is to reach out a loving hand to someone who's expecting to be just hit away, to be rejected, to be cast out on the street because they don't fit the picture. But brothers and sisters, we've been loved by God. Why would we not respond to his call to love the world?
Amen. Well, you've made it to the end of an episode of Adrian Warnock's Christian Podcast. You must have some stamina. Well done. And if you liked what you heard, you know what to do. Subscribe, review, tell all your friends about it. And in the meantime, why not visit adrianwarnock.com.